Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I get so emotional, baby, when I listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Whitney Houston for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, we will give you a raw-boned and wicked good podcast. My name's John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. <sighs> Going to get rolling here. First of all, I want to send out good vibes to my friend, friend of the show, and someone who has been a guest and will be a guest again, Bo James, going through some personal stuff and going through some health issues. So when this show comes out, I'll put something on the Facebook page telling you you know, where to go to, or we'll send a, I'll start a thread uh, sending Bo Good luck wishes. Um, let me see. And speaking of the Facebook page, if you're not a member of it yet, you should be. We have over 15 or 1,400 people who are part of it. We talk wrestling. We talk results. Sometimes we talk about stuff outside of wrestling. It's all a good time. And just ask to join and you're in. Let me see. I want to thank Christopher Cox for sending in his generous donation to the Stick to Wrestling podcast via PayPal. If you would like to donate, if you're feeling all Christmassy right around the middle of December, it's uh, donate at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small and certainly no amount is too big. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam in the Twitter archives and follow the guy who has Don Morocco fighting Moondog Maine with a chair. And this is going to be the last podcast of the fall of 2021. It's going to be winter soon on Tuesday. I love winter. I love to feel that crisp air. I can't get enough of the feeling like my hands are going to fall off as soon as I walk outside. It finally gets dark at like 2 p.m. All the birds die. Maybe I don't like winter. And with that, I want to bring on a brand new guest, um, a good friend of mine for a long time. He's probably the youngest person to ever appear on Stick to Wrestling, but he knows his stuff. Sonny Martinez, thank you for coming on. John, thank you for having me, man. How's it going? Everything's going really good, uh, except winter's about to start, obviously. You're, you're, you're around Buffalo, aren't you? Yeah, I'm about uh, 20 minutes outside Buffalo. Uh, the other day we had... I think 60 mile an hour winds, 70 mile an hour gusts. It's quite crazy around here, but we're still waiting for the snow to fall. Hopefully we get that soon. I, I like the cold, so. No, that's not you better if you live where you are. I mean, I'm sure you watched the Patriots and Bills game where they had that horrible weather and the Patriots threw three passes the entire game. That was different. Unfortunately, I did watch that. That was quite the disaster that I'm actually trying to forget. So thanks for bringing up that sore spot. (laughs) You guys will be fine. Hopefully, Alan will turn around and put it together. But we are talking WWF wrestling from the 80s today. We're going to talk about the champions in the WWF in the 80s, a little bit into the 90s, too. Um, And the big question we're going to ask is, did they hold the belt too long, too short, or just about right? And let's start with the obvious guy, the face of wrestling in the 80s, whether you liked it or not, the guy who completely changed the game, Hulk Hogan. Sonny, what are your thoughts on Hulk Hogan in general as WWF champion? In general, I think he was the perfect guy for the Northeast. They liked the big guys. Um, Obviously, not much in the ring, but he was the perfect guy at the time. I, I never thought Hogan 
was bad in the ring. He was good in the ring when he wanted to be. As a matter of fact, I strongly recommend to everyone listening, Hulk Hogan and Bob Backlund had two matches at the Philadelphia Spectrum in 1980. I I know at least one of them is on YouTube. And these were like four-star matches, really good. And Hogan, you know, even as the 80s went on and he did his, you know, eight-minute formula matches, I mean, he, he gave the people what they wanted to see. They wanted to see Hulk Hogan beat up the bad guy, and that's what they got. Formula matches aren't that bad. I mean, if you're gonna, if someone's gonna kill Hogan for that, you gotta go after Flair for it, whether you like him or not. I mean, there was a formula to Flair matches. There absolutely was. There's no question that, especially in the '80s, the WWF valued the entertainment side of it a lot more than the professional wrestling side of it, like the NWA did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Hogan was was the perfect guy. In your opinion, was Hogan? Did he have the title? Too long, too short, or just about right? That that's a tough one. I would say in his in his first reign, he held it a little bit too long. Granted, again, he was the perfect guy. There was nobody bigger. But my argument would be: imagine at WrestleMania two, if instead of Hogan Bundy in a cage, you go with Hogan and Piper in the cage. Imagine what kind of draw that would be instead. Yeah, I think by that point, they were kind of having some problems with Roddy Piper. Like, he he quit in the summer of 85 because he didn't want to work Portland, if I have that story correctly. And Piper was a little bit stale by 86, but had you, I mean, you could always shoot a hot angle with Roddy Piper and it would work. So, yeah, I could, I mean, I thought Bundy was a poor opponent for Hogan on such a large stage. He had already done jobs for Hogan in Boston and Philadelphia. The angle they built up, the, the WrestleMania Mania match for, I thought was weak. Uh, they could, I, I say they should have done Randy Savage, but Piper would have worked too. Yeah, and, and Savage was the perfect guy, you know, later in the decade. But for that period, I think, you know, Hogan was a little bit long. His second reign, I think it was perfect. I mean, the whole... Macho Man Liz Hogan storyline was perfect. You can't get much better than that. I'm not going to say I know everything, but I was watching SummerSlam uh, 88, and Hogan put Liz on his shoulders, and Randy gave him that look, and I knew. I'm like, okay, I know what the main event for the next WrestleMania is. When we're talking about Hogan, his title reign, too long, too short, we have to throw in the fact that he had to drop the title in 1988 because he was off shooting the movie No Holds Barred. Yeah, and um, that, I guess, I might be jumping ahead, and if I am, I'm sorry, that kind of bleeds into the whole Andre and winning the belt and selling it to DiBiase thing. Do you want to go there yet? Sure. I mean, it was, it was one of, I thought it, it was a very polarizing angle, but I loved it. What did you think? I liked it. I wish DiBiase would have had the belt a little bit longer. I wish he could have not paid off Jack Tunney, but have it imply that he did. Um, keep the belt. That way you could still have Savage win the belt to WrestleMania 4 without the tournament. The tournament was kind of, it took up a lot of time. There were a lot of guys that you knew just had no chance of winning the belt. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard this story. I mean, I'm a hun- I am am 100% sure this is accurate, that, Ted DiBiase was originally supposed to win that tournament, and Randy Savage was supposed to win the Intercontinental title on the same night that they had the Andre versus Hogan angle, and basically Honky Tonk Man refused to drop the belt. Yep, that uh, that happened in my hometown. That's one of the few matches that I really wish I could have been at. Obviously, wasn't born, no possible way for me to be there. 
But that was one of the things that like, I, I wish I could have been in the arena for that. Yeah, I was watching it live, and I mean, I couldn't believe it. The whole, you know, there's two Earl Hebners in that ring. It, it was it was great. I, I mean, I know a lot of people hated it, but I loved it. Hogan, in my opinion, his first reign felt a little bit long, but who else were you going to use? You know, I mean, his second reign, I agree, was just right. And when he won that title back in 1993, I was like, oh, my God, this feels like a mistake. It feels like Vince had just undone all the work he did putting over guys like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. And for once, I was right. The 93 reign was just kind of like awkward and clunky for me. Like it was nice for Yokozuna to be able to beat someone that, you know, of Hogan's stature. But it didn't really seem like he, he beat the Hogan of old. Seemed like he beat a, a washed up wrestler. Yeah, I mean, I remember I, that was the first WrestleMania that I did not watch. My interest in the product in general was beginning to wane, and a guy I kind of knew Yokozuna was going to win the title. And a guy at work who watched it comes up to me. He's like, "Guess who the WWF champion is?" I'm like, "Well, Yokozuna." He's like, "No, Hulk Hogan." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And then that that night, I watched the tape of it. And just a, a real head shaker. But, I mean, Hogan, you know, love him, or, love him or hate him. I mean, he shaped the decade of the 80s in pro wrestling. You're 100% right. I mean, Hogan was to wrestling in the 80s what the Rock and Stone Cold were in the 90s. I mean, just huge. He was, like I said, the perfect guy for the WWF, the perfect guy for Vince. I had been asked in the 90s, in the 80s too, like more than once, who's going to be the next Hulk Hogan? And the answer was there wasn't going to be one. And Austin was as big, if not bigger than Hogan. The Rock, obviously, you know, bigger than Hogan. He's the biggest movie star in the world now. But those guys weren't the next Hogan. They were The Rock and Steve Austin. And I think that's smart. I, I don't think there should be a next anybody. I think there should be a first fill in the blank. Like right now, the first Roman Reigns. You can't do redos of old wrestlers. It just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And I am one of those people who do not think that Roman Reigns has been forced down anyone's throat. That guy, he's the top guy in the business, and he absolutely deserves the spot. He is an all-time great. 100%, especially the stuff he's doing now is just so good. Heyman plays off him so perfectly. It's some of the best stuff the WWE's put out there in a long time. I agree. And, you know, he and he is a phenomenal worker. People try to take that away from him and just watch the match. It's right right there. He is an excellent in-ring performer. He is, and he can have a match with anybody, whether it's Rey Mysterio or Brock Lesnar. Agreed. All right. Uh, number two, Roddy Piper. Do you think he should have had a title around his waist more often than he did, Sonny? Um, yeah, like I said, I, I think he should have in some way, shape, or form, taking the belt off of Hogan, say, you know, eighty late 85, so Hogan could win it back at WrestleMania too, instead of going with King Kong Bundy. He was nuclear heat. Everybody hated him. Everybody just wanted to see the guy get his ass kicked, and that's what you want in a top heel. The promos were so good. Um, the in-ring quality was fantastic. He would have been a, a good choice for champion, even if it was just kind of a, I don't want to say transitional champion, but that might have been good for him. 
There is well, first of all, they finally got a title on Roddy Piper in was late ninety one, early ninety two, and they gave him the Intercontinental Championship, and he had that memorable. Not really a feud, but a rivalry with Bret Hart, and then he did the honors for Bret Hart at WrestleMania in a really good match. There's an expression in wrestling that, you know, this wrestler, he didn't need a title to get over. And I am not a fan of that expression because it implies that Hulk Hogan, Bruno Sammartino, Ric Flair needed a title to get over. No, they were the best fit to be champion. Roddy Piper, in my view, he was the United States champion multiple times in Jim Crockett promotions, and it worked. He just never seemed like a fit to be WWF champion or intercontinental champion in the 80s. It's not that he didn't need the belt, because clearly he didn't. I just didn't see him as a fit, if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense to me, because what you just said is pretty much exactly how I feel about Ricky Steamboat in the WWF. Great wrestler, great intercontinental champion, square peg in a round hole. You know, he wasn't a big guy. He was more of a wrestler. There weren't that many of those on the roster. At that point, you're looking at, you know, Hogan, Bundy, pretty much the entire Heenan family's over 6'6". And then you got Steamboat, who's a smaller guy. Again, great wrestler. Not a great promo, you know, back then at least. But, you know, I, I that's how I feel about Steamboat. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, since we're talking about guys, you know, were they, did they have too long a reign? I mean, I remember hearing the news that Ricky Steamboat had lost the title to the Honky Tonk Man just about eight or nine weeks after he won it at WrestleMania. I mean, I was, I was devastated is not the word, but I was completely shocked, number one. And, and you know, number, I was looking forward to a Ricky Steamboat title reign because I knew what a great wrestler he was. But I can see where you're coming from because the WWF, like Ricky Steamboat was never their type. I mean, you know, they take Ricky Steamboat, the all-American guy, and they make him the karate kid. Yeah, and and the thing with Steamboat is you talk about a generation too soon. Imagine him in the early 90s with Michaels and Hart and Mr. Perfect and Razor Ramon. In that era, I think he would have fit in like a glove. Yeah, it's a shame that the back injuries did him in the way they did. And, you know, I, I've always wondered about Ricky's claim that, you know, he asked for a little bit of time off and they responded by taking the Intercontinental Championship off of him because I do know that Vince was in love with the Honky Tonk Man character to the point where when it completely flopped as a babyface, he just turned around and made him a heel. He wanted that character to get over and my guess, it was more of a Vince decision to go with Wayne Ferris than it was to take the title off Steamboat because he wanted some time off. Yeah, I don't know too much about what really happened there with Steamboat and Vince and wanting the time off and everything. But I think Steamboat's reign is hard to judge as to whether that was, you know, just right, too long, whatever. Honky Tonk Man was just, I mean, perfect in that role. The chicken blank heel that, I mean, dirty tactics to win, couldn't do it on his own. And the way he lost the belt was perfect for that character. Agreed. And I will say this. We were talking about, you know, does this wrestler need this title to get over? That was a case where the championship really got that character over. And I'm not complaining about it. I mean, here's Wayne Ferris, who was just in Calgary a few years, uh, a year ago, is now main eventing the Boston Guard and the Philadelphia Spectrum all over the place against Randy Savage, main eventing. 
Yeah, and it was well-deserved, too. I mean, he he did his job very well. He did his time in the territories going through Memphis and everything else. He he was good. Now, did you think Honky Tonk Man, was his reign too long, too short, or just right? I would say just right based off of who he lost it to and how he lost it. For someone like him with the persona he had, like I said, he couldn't win a match on his own, always using these ridiculous tactics to get just annihilated in what was it 25 seconds something like that perfect and to, for someone like the warrior to run it through him after he comes out there all arrogant i could beat anybody then that music hits and he gets flattened that alone right there to me makes it good yeah i agree with you and we're talking about championships getting guys over i mean being the intercontinental champion really boosted ultimate warrior in my opinion yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know if it's fair to argue, but I would think that that played a big part in him getting to Hogan was having that belt and the runny head with it, even with the loss to Rick Rude, which, you know, I, I guess in hindsight, I don't know if I would have done that, but I'd like your thoughts on that. Um, I, I don't think it hurt him. I think it helped Rude more than it hurt the Warrior. I think people got over that really quickly. I thought Honky Tonk's Man or Honky Tonk's Man run was a little bit long. I think it would have been perfect had they taken it would have been a perfect length had they taken the title off of him in Indianapolis, February 1988. Um, and he went through basically the whole summer with the title. And, and to me at the time, it started feeling a little bit drawn out. But at the same time, now Honky Tonk Man has that panage of be, having the longest intercontinental ch- title reign of all time. At the same time, though, when you have someone like Hogan as champion, you'd like to have someone as Honky Tonk Man as the Intercontinental Champion, you know? I can see that. And looking back, too, I'm a little bit surprised that they never had a Hulk Hogan versus Honky Tonk Man run. They wrestled on Saturday night's main event, which I was there live for. But, I mean, that was one match. It wasn't a series. Yeah, especially if who I don't remember who it was, Hogan or Honky Tonk Man, one of them said... They uh, Hogan suggested Honky Tonk Man to be Intercontinental Champ as a first in the first place, unless that was just Hogan's way of not wanting to work with Honky Tonk Man and kind of saying, "Here, go off, do your own thing." If he vouched for him like that, you'd think he'd want a program with him, especially considering Honky Tonk Man. I mean, no offense to guys like on you know late eighties Andre or Bundy or anybody, Honky Tonk Man was a better worker than them. You'd think Hogan would want a chance to kind of show off his in ring ability against someone like that. Um, I can see that. At the same time, you had, in 88, you had Hulk Hogan main eventing one city um, when he came back in September, and then you had Randy Savage chasing Honky Tonk Man for the belt in another city, so the WWF was kind of printing money at this point. Yeah, and that's another reason why Honky Tonk Man's reign, I think, was just about right. The ticket sales and the draw he had, and like I said, people just wanted to see him get his ass kicked every night. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the character is someone who was, what, 20, 21, 22 years old, and that just wasn't the wrestling I was used to. But I can't argue that it wasn't successful. It was successful. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you this about Honky Tonk Man. One of my favorite things about him is my grandmother is 89 years old, and to this day, if you bring Honky Tonk Man up around her, she sounds like Jim Cornette talking about Kenny Omega. <laughs> I mean, she goes just crazy about, I can't stand him, that Elvis ripoff. That, to me, shows he was just perfect at his job. Wow, that is that's a great story. <laughs> All right, how about 
how about Randy Savage? What do we think of him? Like he held the Intercontinental Championship, held the WWF Championship. Did he have championships too often, not often enough, or just just right? I'd say he was perfect for both titles, actually. Um, the Intercontinental title, talk about doing your job to elevate someone to that level. He obviously would have got there anyways, but that Intercontinental title really strapped the rocket to him. As for the WWF title, winning it at WrestleMania 4, the correct call. Again, going into that storyline with Hogan, you know, from Holt to Holder from one WrestleMania, then you go to SummerSlam, he thinks Hogan betrays him. You know, now you got the problem. They met, they wrestle at WrestleMania 5. I mean, that was one of the best storylines they've ever done either. So I think both of them were perfect. You know, I remember we were talking earlier about SummerSlam and, and Savage giving Hogan that look. Like I'm like, wow, Randy Savage is going to turn heel. How are they going to turn Elizabeth heel? And and I was like, I don't know how they're going to do this. And they handled it right. They didn't turn her. They made her loyalty a part of the storyline. Let's be honest here. Hogan was the heel. Oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll be the one to say it. Hogan was the heel. Ice, eye pokes, back scratches, hitting on another man's wife. He was a heel. Come on. I can see that, but I, I think to the average person watching at home, Randy Savage was the out-of-control, jealous dude where, you know, the, the who overreacted to whatever Hulk Hogan was doing, and then he pushes her down on national TV. Wow. Yeah, that was a little stiff, but I mean, if, if Liz was your wife and someone's doing that, you know, especially when he, he abandoned Randy Savage in that tag match to carry Liz backstage... I mean, the way Hogan looked at her with lust in your eyes, brother. Yeah, it's a terrible savage, but whatever. You know, that Hogan was a heel. He, yeah, he did some heelish things. And that, that dressing room segment, my guy. Oh, Elizabeth, please don't die. <laughs> it was too much. Preceded by the legendary, hey, you got the time, brother? Yep. And we, we were watching it. We were watching it at Jamie Ward's house over 30 years ago. And what a good time, just all of us cracking up through that. Yeah, that was just, that was part of the absurd WWF. It really was. Randy Savage was doing some of the best interviews ever leading up to WrestleMania. I think they are available on Peacock, on uh, Primetime Wrestling. Um, I mean, this was some really good stuff, if anyone listening wants to seek that out. All right, before your time, but I mean, you're... I don't want to say the word historian, but you know what you're talking about. Bob Backlund wins the title in February 1978, loses it December 1983. Sonny, your thoughts on the length, first of all, of Bob Backlund's uh, title reign? They were too long, too short, or just right? All right, so this is where I'll admit I am not as good of an expert as, you know, mid-late 80s and on. No, thanks for being honest. <laughs> I think it was too long. Fans were getting sick of Backlund. Again, he dropped it to a good opponent in the Iron Sheik, but I would have probably went maybe 81 instead of waiting so long. I personally felt Bob Backlund's reign, and I'm someone who you know lived through it, uh, attending the matches, super fan. I thought it was way too long, despite the fact that the WWF was still drawing. They had a killer 1983 at the gate. Artistically, it felt way too long, and I, I've talked about this before. I thought he was losing it to Greg Valentine in 1981. 
I don't know if anyone listening has ever watched a movie and you think the movie's over, but then it's got like 20 or 30 minutes to go and like you can't enjoy the movie anymore. You thought it was done. And that's where I was with Bob Backlund. I mean, he won the title when I was in seventh grade. He lost it like after I graduated high school. And when you're that age, that's an eternity. Wow. That I did not realize it was it was when you put it like that, you know, that's forever. It really is. And but like I said, I will defend Bob by saying that even though the fans were starting to turn on him, the, the fans were still buying tickets in 81, 82 and 83. Yeah, and and to put it in kind of today's terms, you know, maybe a, a John Cena comparison where people still go to see him, but they also kind of want him out of that picture. Let me throw a name out there to, there to you uh, that he could have dropped the belt to, and I'd like your opinion on this. What about Adrian Adonis? Adrian Adonis is in the argument for being the best in-ring performer in the world in like 81, 82, early 83. And I am aware that Ric Flair and Tatsumi Fujinami just to name two guys, were part of that world. That's how good Adrian Adonis was. However, I did not see him as a world championship caliber wrestler. First of all, he, he didn't have the right body. He didn't have the right look. I don't, I don't think he had world champion charisma. Southwest Championship Wrestling tried to promote him as the world's heavyweight champion in 1983. And my opinion was, you know, as much as I liked Adonis, I went, I went out dressed as Adonis for Halloween once. Um, <laughs> you know, I compared him to Ric Flair, Bob Backlund, and Nick Bockwinkle, and I was like, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, you're right on that. And, and that's kind of how I feel about uh, Greg Valentine. You threw him out there also. Obviously, very good wrestler. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's because before my time, I kind of have a perceived view of him since I didn't experience what he was like, you know, as it was happening. To me, he kind of fit better at that intercontinental title level. I don't know that I could see him carrying a company. I thought he could. And I, I mean, I thought not only he could, I thought he would. I mean, Valentine pre and when he was at the, with the WWF in 79, I mean, I knew we were getting a top caliber guy as a challenger for Bob Backlund. Then he went to Mid-Atlantic, and he was the lead heel there through almost three years, and he held the U.S. title. He held it in 1980, and he also held it in 1983. So, I mean, I thought he had the background, man. I thought he was going to be the next superstar Billy Graham guy who held the, the, the heel who held the title for about a year and gave title shots to guys like Tony Atlas and Ivan Putsky. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I just can't envision that with him. No, and everyone's got their own, you know, viewpoint. And that's why we're here. For, if, I, if everyone said the same thing as me, this would not be an interesting podcast. Um, so Tito Santana, do you think he was? Oh, and, and by the way, I, I did say this. Bob Backlund was champion, in my opinion, for too long. I think four years would have been a lot better than six years. Tito Santana. Your thoughts on him as Intercontinental Champion, Sonny, and did he hold the title too long, too short, or just right? Um, I would say just right on him. You know, Vince likes kind of the to have that Latino star, Hispanic star, whatever you want to call it. He fit that well. I think he, not long term, but I think he could have somehow fit into the WWF title picture if they handled him right. I think that would have been a tough one. Um, I think the Intercontinental Championship was a good level for Tito Santana. 
I was very surprised when he won the title. I, I've said this on the show before. I was there at the Boston Garden. I saw it with my own eyes, and I still didn't believe it. I thought they were going to come on TV next week and say, oh, the, the, the decision's been reversed. But Tito was a classic guy who, you know, the title made him a star, and it all worked out in the end. It did. Um, I personally kind of like him better, you know, as, as a tag team guy. I liked him in Strike Force. I, I would say it's just right. My opinion is that the first reign worked. He was, you know, champion, won it in February, and he lost it, I want to say, in July 1984. And when they put him, when they put the title back on Tito, it worked. Everyone liked Tito Santana. But I, in my opinion, that second reign should not have happened. They should have put the title on another guy uh, in an attempt to get him over. And I'm, I'm going through my Rolodex of wrestlers saying, okay, who is that guy? Like maybe Barry Windham or Ricky Steamboat. But I thought, you know, the first reign was enough. I didn't think there should have been a second reign. But I'm glad they put him in a tag team after Tom Zank walked out and, you know, and he got that spot as WWF Tag Team Champion, and that was an excellent team. Barry Windham as Intercontinental Champion is very interesting to me. Do you think if he had won it that he would have maybe stuck around the WWF a little longer and not came back as, as the Widowmaker or whatever in 89? What do you think his WWF future would have looked like had he won the belt? Um, I think he would have stuck around. I mean, that would have been too lucrative a spot for Barry Windham to turn down to go, you know, just go back to the dying Florida promotion. I mean, that was that was very much a surprise when it happened. And I I've learned over the years there was a lot of stuff going on internally and that, you know, no disrespect to the Windham family, but it's been rumored that Blackjack Mulligan would frequently give Barry some not particularly good advice. I had never heard that before, actually. Uh, yeah, I've actually heard it from more than one source, and it's, you know, I, I believe it. I mean, you know, Blackjack was a little bit of a rebel, and he, you know, had his share of walking out of promotions, and I guess at the, at the end of the day, he always had work when he wanted it, so he figured that would work for Barry, and it didn't always. I mean, when Barry left the NWA uh, end of, beginning of 1989 and went to the WWF, I thought he was going to do really big things. And then I'm watching primetime wrestling, and I see him doing jobs to Tito Santana. For Tito, not doing jobs, but going to a draw with Tito Santana, who by that point was you know further down on the card. And I was like, wow, you know, Barry crashed and burned here. Yeah, Barry at that point was one of the best workers in the business, and you would have thought that he would have been at least upper mid-card, but the way they were handling him, he was, you know, way too low on the card. Yeah, it was almost like they didn't forgive him for whatever happened in night. never really got over what happened in 1985 when, you know, I mean, he quit the, he quit the promotion and Dan Spivey had to step into his place. Yeah, and Spivey, I mean, take him or leave him. I, I, when I first saw Rotundo with his new partner, I was like, and this was in Boston, and I'm like, Barry looks weird, and it turns out that, no, it's not Barry, it's Dan Spivey, and, you know, you read in the magazines that Barry's back in Florida, and, you know, and then obviously Rotundo and Spivey was nothing compared to Rotundo and Wyndham. So are we saying Rotunda, or uh, Spivey, and, uh... Wyndham are to wrestling what Jimmy Snuka and C.V. Afi are? <laughs> I, 
What you, Sergeant Slaughter and Corporal Kirshner? You got it. We've got the threesome now. Oh, I'm glad you didn't go Colonel De Beers on that one. <laughs> All right. Magnificent Morocco held the Intercontinental Championship twice. Uh, won it in 1981, then he won it back after losing it uh, in early 1983. Finally dropped it to Tito Santana, uh, February 1984. Sonny, do you think he held the belt too much, not enough, or just right? I think he held it just right, but I think he should have been moved up to the WWF title picture after his first reign. I think he'd have been a good heel especially to go against Hogan in main events. Well, I agree. Um, I remember when Morocco came back at the very end of 1982, I thought for sure he was going to win the title and the WWF title. I'm like, this is it. This is the new superstar, Billy Graham. I saw that he had Lou Albano as his manager, which kind of cast a little bit of doubt into my mind because, well, obviously the Grand Wizard's going to manage the heel WWF champion. but. Then I thought about it more, and I'm like, you know, I think it's Lou Albano's turn, and I think he would be a good heel manager. And then when Morocco won the Intercontinental Championship from Pedro Morales, I was like, okay, he's obviously not going to win both titles, so Bob's going to be champion for a while, for a while longer, I should say. Yeah, and Morales didn't, or I'm sorry, uh, Morocco didn't hold the championship that long the first time. What was it? maybe six, seven months. Yeah. And um, that would have been a good time to elevate him. Yeah, I thought the second run, as much as I enjoyed it, may have been unnecessary. I think there might have been a different heel. I don't know, mass superstar, Sergeant Slaughter, who could have used a, a first run rather than Morocco getting a second run. But then I think about it, I'm like, okay, Morocco had... Three very large feuds during his run in 1983. He had the big run against Bob Backlund. Then he had the big run against Rocky Johnson. And then he had that tremendous run against Jimmy Snuka. And you know what? To me, you kind of need the Intercontinental Championship to make that match as big as it was. Yeah, and, and without that, without Morocco having the title for the Snuka feud, is the jump off the cage as legendary as it is? No, I agree. You know, we have you seen the 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 Lee from Madison Square Garden? Yeah, the one that uh, Foley and Tommy Dreamer and all them guys were at. Yeah. Okay. What did you What did you think? By today's standards, it's nothing. Know, by today's standards, it's, it's not that impressive. But looking back at it from that period, that was one of the craziest things they've ever done. I. It was for its time. It was considered just incredible. He did it in 1982 against uh, Bob Backlund and missed in Madison Square Garden. And then he did it in Madison Square Garden again with Morocco, and he and he hit with it. And I am lucky enough to have seen that live at the Boston Garden, and the place just came unglued. And like I said, for its time, it was just unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, what was the biggest high-risk move back then? Probably Harley Race with the headbutt off the top rope? Oh... That's got to be it. Either that or Mil Mascara is coming off the top rope with the uh, flying body splash. Yeah, that too. Imagine if Mascara was the one to jump off the top of the cage. What kind of play that would have got? <laughs> I'm not, you, know, you know, I mean, you look at Snooker doing that. I mean, the guy was, I want to say he was at least 40 years old. 
And, you know, that's a big jump. And he did it at least at least three times. And, you know, you're on the top of that cage, one false move. And you're if you're going the wrong way, like towards ringside, you're not going to survive that. Especially back then. And obviously, Snooker was in good shape. He looked phenomenal. But 40 back then compared to now, I mean, you know, some of the top guys in wrestling right now are over 45. Yeah, which I see as kind of a negative that the WWF won't bring in. Now the w, or WWE won't bring in guys unless they're in their mid-30s. And to me, that's that's not good policy. I mean, I know they want uh, maturity, but, you know, you can't. To me, they have too many old guys out there today. What are your thoughts, Sonny? Yeah, I totally agree with that. They, I mean, John Cena, The Undertaker, The Rock, Triple H, you're not going to be around forever. You get, At some point, you have to start building and replacing. Yeah, well, at least this WrestleMania, we didn't get more Triple H, and it looks like Triple H is done. And, you know, I mean, good for him. At some point, you have to get out of the business. But I have long been complaining about WrestleMania being, a, you know, the old guys come out of retirement, and these are the real stars that are, you know, and that mentality holds back the, the guys who are out there breaking their butts on every Monday and Friday night. Yeah, there's a reason I on Twitter last year I called it part-timer mania. It was just one guy after another part-time this. You know, obviously Lesnar's a draw. You're going to get people that want to see The Undertaker. People are clamoring for The Rock to come back for one more match against Roman Reigns. I'd rather have someone that's there every night that you can build to that level. I agree. You want someone who is on the road with the company drawing money as your top guy, not someone who's in an office 364 days a year. Correct. And that's not a slight on Triple H, who I've no. I've actually realized over the last few years is one of my all-time favorites, believe it or not. But still, you know, I'd rather have, you know, Drew McIntyre being built to that level than Triple H coming out of retirement every single year. Yeah, you know, I think in a, in a way, Triple H is very underrated. I mean, he had a great run uh, starting in like the year 2000, and that lasted like 10 years. And you know, people complain about his ego or whatever else. It's like, look, he was the top guy. You've got to, you know, you've got to give him props for that. Triple H was back in times a thousand in 2002, three and four, where the fans just hated him and not for the right reasons. He was, I mean, people complain about Roman Reigns. Triple H was shoved down everybody's throat at that point. He should have lost the belt to RVD in 03. He should have lost it to Booker T at WrestleMania 19. That's 100% a hill I'm willing to die on. Booker T should have won the championship at WrestleMania 19, but Triple H pawned his politics. Didn't happen. No, I agree. And, you know, I remember 2002, the way Chris Jericho was booked. They booked him as, you know, the one man who could defeat The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin on the same night. But in a way, that was used as like a hammer to beat him down. It's like, well, we, we fed you The Rock and Austin all the same night, and yet you still didn't get over like crazy. Well, it's because they booked him looking weak, looking like Stephanie's, you know, he was on Stephanie's leash, for Christ's sake. Exactly. That was a problem, was bringing Stephanie into it. And and I think you could have done that, but not to the degree they did. Agreed. Now, I know, well, all these guys are a little bit before your time, but Pedro Morales is before your time. Um, but he was the World Wrestling Federation champion for four years in the 70s. Uh, actually, it was more like three years. He was the Intercontinental Champion in eighty in 1980, lost it in 1981 to Morocco, regained it late 1981, and then dropped it again to Morocco early 1983. Share your thoughts on Pedro Morales and whether or not he had the belt too often. 
So believe it or not, Pedro Morales is actually one of the guys I have a stronger opinion on. I think I wish I could have swapped his first and second reign. I think his first reign was too short, um, 194 days. His second reign was 425. I had to swap those. With Morales being a former WWF champion, have him hold that Intercontinental title. It was still new at that point. It had only been around for, what, a year and a half? Have him show that, you know what, I was a former champion. I ran this company. And right now, this belt is just as important as the main championship. I mean, Morales, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. The first reign I thought was really good, well thought out. You're giving the former WWF world champion his props. And it, it worked. And the second one, I felt was real. I was really surprised when Morales beat Mor- Morocco for, for the title. It felt a little bit like, okay, I've seen this movie before. But the bottom line is it absolutely worked. I, he was as strong a number two babyface as you could ask for. Behind Bob Backlund, he was over. His matches usually weren't that good by this point. I mean, let's be honest, but he worked the role well. On some level, I still think they should have given it to Tony Atlas or maybe even Ivan Putski, more Tony Atlas than Ivan Putski, but use that to get someone else over. I mean, I think Tony Atlas would have done great as the number two guy in the WWF. Putski's actually the guy I think he should have dropped it to with the second reign. I think that would have been a, a good move. All right, I can see that. I mean, and and Putski, we've talked about him on the show before. He was effective in his role. Like, I know a lot of, uh, he got so much heat in the Observer in the 80s. It was insane about, you know, how bad he was, etc. But, you know, and I've, I've said this on the show before. He could come to a small town in Pennsylvania, small town in Massachusetts, and people would come out to see him. Yeah, he was a draw, which is what you want. Um, obviously, the the Polish thing in New York, another thing Vince absolutely loved. I probably would have went with him about halfway through Morales' second reign. I, I could definitely see that. I mean, any time you had a heel intercontinental champion and Ivan Putski was against that guy in a major arena, you kind of said, okay, you know, this might be the night. All right, let's talk about... The Ultimate Warrior, they put the Intercontinental Championship on him at SummerSlam 1988. They He held it for a while, then he held the World's Championship. Sonny, do you think Ultimate Warrior was, was underbelted, overbelted, or just right? Um, I kind of mentioned this earlier. In retrospect, I'm not sure I would have had him lose to Rick Rude at WrestleMania Five. At the time, it was probably the right move. Um, boosted Rick Rude, really helped out the Heenan family get a little bit more heat. The WWF title reign, I think, was, I mean, good and bad. Um, I would have to say just right. Losing it to Slaughter was good. I I might have been tempted to go back to Hogan, though, sooner than they did. I mean, one there's two th- reigns of thought, uh, lanes of thought on Hulk Hogan as champion. I mean, he was champion for a long time, and he was starting to lose his appeal. I mean, you know, let's face it, 1990, he had been the top guy in the WWF for uh, six years, and that's a long time for anyone. And uh, in a way, it always felt like Vince McMahon was trying to come up with the next Hulk Hogan. We talked about this earlier. You know, there is no such thing. I mean, he tried that with Ultimate Warrior, then he tried it with Lex Luger, and then he tried it with Diesel, and it just never happened. Yeah, and I think, especially during the Warriors WWF title reign, that would have been the time to put the championship on Mr. Perfect. He could lose it to a heel, 
perfect was one of those guys that the fans would hate because he's gonna he's gonna tell you how good it he is and then he's gonna go on the ring and he's gonna back it up. Warrior, and I've said this before. It felt like Warrior instead of okay, he's our new top guy now. This is this is it. Hulk Hogan has had his run. He is now number two. This Ultimate Warrior is our top guy. They went out of their way, you know, to make sure that Hulk Hogan was still the number one guy, even though he wasn't the champion. And I have always felt like even in 1990. And I am not, I was never the biggest Ultimate Warrior fan, but I thought it was time for them to pass the torch from Hogan to Warrior, and they, they never did it. Yeah, I don't think Hogan, or uh, I'm sorry, I don't think Warrior ever got really a fair shake to be the top guy. Even at SummerSlam 90, um, that card was mostly built around Hogan and Earthquake and sending the cards to get Hogan back. It should have been more Warrior and... I don't know if I would have put Root in there at that point to face the Warrior at SummerSlam 90. Um, like I said, I think maybe Mr. Perfect would have been a better option. But he was never really given the chance to run with the ball, I don't think. No, not really. I thought I thought they took good care of Kurt Henning. They gave him the Intercontinental Championship. They gave him the Mr. Perfect gimmick, which I thought was... I liked the gimmick, but it didn't really get over the way it should have. And I think part of the problem was that it was too similar to Ted DiBiase's Million Dollar Man gimmick, which they had debuted only a year earlier. But you made a really good point. I mean, SummerSlam 90 was really, I mean, they built it as a double main event, but if you watched, you knew the real main event was Hulk Hogan against the Earthquake. Yeah, and they didn't even make an attempt to hide that. Um, If you really wanted to make it a double main event, you wanted Hogan in that spotlight. Maybe not a tag match, but what about Warrior and Dino Bravo? The quality of the match probably isn't going to be there, but Earthquake and Bravo were, were I guess, partners at the time, and that would have been a good way to connect the two. Yeah, you know, one thing I liked about SummerSlam 90 is how they used Rick Rude. Like, they're like, okay, you know, he's getting very serious. He wants to be the WWF World's Champion. He gets a haircut. He stops doing the... uh the gimmick where he kisses girls before the matches, they they show him training in the gym. I thought they did they did a really good job getting Root over. What they didn't do is do a good job getting the match over as a pay per view main event. Like 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 we said, it was more Hogan was the main event, not Warrior, and that that's going to hurt Warrior in, in the long run. Yeah, and even the Intercontinental title match they had at WrestleMania Five felt like a bigger match than the world title match they had at SummerSlam, which is kind of weird. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, it, like I said, they, they made it clear that while Warrior was the champion, Hulk Hogan was still the number one guy. And, and big surprise, Warrior did not get over the way he should have. Yeah, I mean, even jumping further ahead, Royal Rumble 91, it was more about how was Hogan going to fare in the Rumble match than who's going to win between Warrior and Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, and that was, you know, I, I think I've said this before. If someone had told me in 1986 that five years from now, Sergeant Slaughter would be the WWF champion and the main event as champion against Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, I mean, I would, I would simply put, I would think they were crazy. Yeah, and to me, the whole Rumble 91 outcome was very obvious. You knew it was going to be Hogan, and you knew it was going to be Slaughter, just because of the nationality thing they had going on. 
not to bring modern wrestling into it again, but the thing I compare it to is when Jack Swagger won the uh, Elimination Chamber to face Alberto Del Rio at WrestleMania. That was a country thing as well. The WWF keeps blowing it with some of their their best prospects. I mean, you know, you, I forget Jack Swagger's real name, but I mean, giving the guy the name Jack Swagger is terrible. And here's a guy who, you know, was a, a top offensive lineman at Oklahoma. He was, a, I believe, a heavyweight wrestler at Oklahoma. He's got the look, he's got the skill, and they completely blew it with him. Yeah, and I guess the timing of his DUI that he had right before uh, was WrestleMania 27, I believe. That probably didn't help things either. No. But they also gave him the world title way too early in 2010. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, the, the name the name is completely just, you know, has not a star written all over it. No, it's it's a main event in a fire hall. <laughs> I agree. Anyway, Sonny and I have talked wrestling for just about an hour. If you are not interested in our extra, what is it, bonus content, then I thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Right now, Sonny and I are going to provide bonus content for everyone. We're going to talk a little bit of college football. Bowl season is is going to be, let me see, this comes out on Friday, which is the first bowl. Sonny, um, let me let me get your thoughts, first of all, on the national championship. Who do you think is going to be playing in that game, and who do you think is going to be winning that game? I hate to say it, but I think it's going to be Georgia and Alabama again. Um, I think... Ten or I think uh, I'm sorry, Tennessee. I'm wearing a Tennessee shirt, by the way. Not like I'm trying to suck up to the host or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Cincinnati's just going to get boat raced, and I'm still not totally sold on Michigan. And I really can't put my finger on why. I don't have a definitive reason. Obviously, good team, good enough to make it. I don't think that they can stand up to Georgia. I agree with you. I think that um, I think Cincinnati is a legit team. They have NFL players on the roster. I think I give them a puncher's chance against Alabama. But in the end, I'm not I'm not only going with Alabama to win the game. I'm going with Alabama to, to cover the spread, which I think is 14 points. Um, Georgia, Michigan, uh, with all I, I we have a lot of Michigan fans who listen to this podcast. All due respect. Great season. But I, I see Michigan just getting pummeled by Georgia. I. I think they brought their very best game against Ohio State, and good for them. They finally beat Ohio State, but I think that's their their last win of the year. And you can't forget the intangible on that, too. Georgia is a very angry football team right now. As they should be. Who are you taking to win the whole thing? I I don't know that Alabama can beat Georgia twice. I'm going to stick with Georgia winning it. Georgia has such a ferocious defense. They were averaging less than seven points a game given up before they ran into the Alabama buzzsaw. I do think it's going to be Alabama versus Georgia uh, rematch. Sonny, you bring up a good point. Like, can Alabama beat Georgia twice? I'm going to say yes. These are two of my least favorite teams out there. As everyone knows, I'm a Tennessee Volunteers fan, and that's the, you know those are two of their rivals. But Alabama has Saban, and I don't see Nick Saban being outcoached by Kirby Smart. I just don't. I think, you know, I kind of expected what we saw in the SEC championship game happening. I was not at all surprised. I think we're going to see it again, I think, on January 11th. Yeah, I definitely don't think he'll be outcoached, per se. 
I think it's a matter of do the players come in with big heads like, oh, been there, done this. We handled Georgia once. We can do it again. That's the worst kind of attitude they can have because you know Georgia's going to be out for blood in this game. That's a really good point. And I'm going to say that, you know, once again, this, this is Nick Saban. Nick is, he's not going to put up with that. You know, I think he knows how to motivate players, especially when it comes to winning a national championship. And I, I, I'm pretty sold on Alabama here. I mean, obviously, I'm saying that Cincinnati has a puncher's chance because they are, in my opinion, a far better team than people realize. Uh, they didn't just load up on a bunch of softies. And like I said, they, you know, they have a good point, differ- point differential through the season. And they've got NFL players. and They've got an excellent coach. Yeah, and, and while on the subject of Alabama, what are your thoughts on the Heisman? Do you think they got it right with giving it to Bryce Young? I, you know what? This was one of the worst Heisman years ever. Um, there just wasn't that Barry Sanders uh, guy out there, you know, that just ran roughshod over everybody. But yeah, I mean, especially after championship week, I mean, Bryce Young just nailed it down, in my opinion. There, there really was not a better choice. I would have went with Kenny Pickett. I can see Kenny Pickett. Show me a game he had where he didn't look like a Heisman caliber player. And then go back and watch Bryce Young play against Auburn. The first 59 minutes of that game, he wasn't good. Pickett has been phenomenal all season. He, I think he had two games under 300 yards. I mean, he led Pitt to a 10-2 and two season, which, you know, we, and we have Pitt fans who are listeners. I mean, that, that's phenomenal for that school and good for them. That was a great season. And... He he is like the guy on that team. I, as you know, I'm a Lions fan. Unfortunately, I, that's who I hope they get is Kenny Pickett. Now, do you want them drafting Kenny Pickett? I mean, they're going to be drafting in the top five. Do you want him taking that high? No, uh, they have another first round pick. Okay, um, that's right. They have the Rams pick. Ones. Yeah, so I would like to get him there uh, first overall. Probably, probably Hutchison. I am sticking with Kayvon Thibodeau as the number one guy overall. I know Hutchinson had a great season. He got better and better. Thibodeau, I know, was inconsistent. He basically vanished against Utah. But, and you know, you got to wait for the workouts, obviously. But if it were my pick and I had to make it right now, Kayvon Thibodeau. Yeah, he's a good player, obviously. I, uh... I'm not 100% sold on him in the NFL, and again, like Michigan, I don't know why. Great player. I think he's going to be good, but I don't know I don't know that when we look back 10 years from now, he's going to be the best player in the draft. Uh, you know what? Usually the number one isn't, but that's just how it goes in, dra- in draft land. Now, uh, Sonny and I are going to talk about our five best picks against the spread for the bowl games. Now, don't go out and say, oh my God, Johnny Mac picked this game. Here's all my money, Mr. Bookmaker. I am not uh, an expert at this in any way, but I have fun with it. Sonny, what's your number five bowl game? What's your number five bowl game pick, I should say? Okay, so I apologize. I did not do this in order of top five, actually. Um, I just have five games written down. I guess the first one I'd go with is Mississippi State minus eight and a half against Texas Tech the Mike Leach Bowl. I think yes. if it's possible for Mike Leach to break Georgia Tech's 222-point record, he's going to try in this game. I did not think of that. Mike Leach, thinks uh, to this day, is insistent that Texas Tech owes him money. 
yeah, he's not a happy camper with that school still, even though really nobody there's associated with that anymore. He still does not like them. This is his chance to embarrass them on the field. I did not think of that. That is a really good pick. Eight and a half, giving eight and a half points might be a little bit rich for my blood, but you're right. Mike Leach is, he's going to, he's going to want this one. Yeah, definitely. And I, I just think Mississippi State has more talent than Texas Tech. They Tech's do. a good team. I like, I liked them at the beginning of the year. I'm sure you remember me saying that. I was one of the few that thought they'd go to a bowl. I like what they're building now with Joey McGuire. Just not right now. Not in this situation. All right. My number five is, and a lot of mine are going to be based on, okay, well, like Sonny's last pick. I mean, who's going to show up for this game and who's not? A lot of teams look at it as, uh, you know, it's just an exhibition game at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, I just want to get out of here. And my number one, my number five is UTEP plus 13.5 over Fresno State. Uh, Fresno State has an interim coach. Uh, They lost their quarterback to the transfer portal. And it just feels like to me, UTEP, they're going to be up for this one. They don't go to bowls very often. They haven't won a bowl since 1967. They had a good season. I don't think they're going to win outright, but I mean, 13 and a half points is a lot of points. I'm I'm taking UTEP. Yeah, I could see that. Um, is is Hayner playing in that game officially? I saw he withdrew from the transfer portal. Is he officially playing in that game? I don't know. I did not realize that he withdrew from the transfer portal. Yeah, he, he announced he's going back. Uh, I guess they sold him on their vision. I think that would play a lot into my thought on that game. I think if he's playing, they can do it. No offense to UTEP, but it's UTEP. You know, Fresno State should be able to cakewalk him. All right. What, uh, give me another one of your picks, honey. Uh, the other one, again, maybe homerish, Tennessee minus four and a half against Purdue. I like Hendon Hooker coming back. Tennessee, obviously not an elite team. Purdue tends to show up better versus better competition. That might sound like a slight on Tennessee, but it's not. I think they can win maybe 10, 14 points against Purdue. I, as a Tennessee fan, I look at that game. And so many good things have happened in Knoxville this year. I mean, it feels like we have the right athletic director. We have the right coach. He did not leave for his alma mater, Oklahoma, when that opened up. And it didn't seem like they were very interested anyway. But that was a fear um, in Tennessee fans' hearts. You know, if uh, Oklahoma loses, you know, their coach as they did, is this guy going to jump to Oklahoma? You know, with Lincoln Riley leaving for USC. I look at that Tennessee game and I see something wrong. I'm like, okay, why is this line only four and a half? It feels like it should be more eight or nine. That's what scared me off about picking Tennessee. Plus, I didn't want to come across as a homer. No, I get it. And and you're right. That line does seem kind of low. Um, but I, I think Hendon Hooker's a difference maker. If he was out, I'd be tempted to go Purdue. But I would go Tennessee in that. My thoughts on Hendon Hooker is I'm in love with a hooker. That guy is phenomenal. (laughs) If he didn't come back, I would have bet anything I had that Spencer Rattler was going to Tennessee. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Spencer Rattler. I mean, someone made a good point. Like, wow, he's going to, you know, South Carolina and South Carolina fans are happy and I'm happy for you. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything to get the guy. But if Spencer Rattler couldn't get it humming, with Lincoln Riley as his coach, is he going to be able to get it humming with Shane Beamer as his coach? I don't know. 
especially you're going from facing Big 12 defenses to SEC defenses. Yep. You're, you're going from the likes of Texas Tech and Kansas. Now you're going to be playing Georgia and, you know, Florida. Granted, there's Vanderbilt in there too, which is, you know, a step above a beer league team, let's be honest. Yeah. But I, I agree. But Shane Beamer is obviously people are buying what he's selling. He's eating up that transfer portal like crazy. I just hope it doesn't come back to bite him like that. That's making me think of Charlie Weiss of Kansas, where he went with all the Juco transfers, and that just came back and bit him right in the ass. Charlie Weiss, what a disaster he was at Kansas. My God. But anyway. Don't forget what a disaster he was at Notre Dame, too. You know, it, I don't think he was a disaster at Notre Dame because he started off so strong and got Notre Dame on their feet again. But by the end, you're right, things had fallen apart. But his overall grade at Notre Dame, to me, wasn't that bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't that bad. That's the thing. But at the beginning, he was winning with somebody else's guys, you know? Yep. I did, I never envisioned him as, as a Notre Dame coach. I, I remember um, – you're a big Notre Dame fan, right? Yes. Okay. I remember when they hired Charlie Weiss, they were going to bring in Urban Meyer, and he wanted the job, and Notre Dame tried, allegedly, tried to lowball Urban Meyer, who was coming off an undefeated season at Utah, and say, oh, yeah, you know, once you've established yourself and won a few games, you know, we'll give you a raise. And Urban Meyer said, see ya, I'm going to Gainesville. And it was looked at, Charlie Weiss was looked at as a, you know, a downgrade for what they were hoping in Urban Meyer. And I'm like, hey, this is, this guy's the offensive coordinator of the Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots. Hello. He, he has a close relationship with Tom Brady and it went well at first, then it fell apart. Yeah. And by the end, you could just tell like his teams, they didn't have much effort. It was, it was ugly. And then there was a disaster that was Jimmy Clausen, which really didn't help matters much either. Nope. I remember the, the day it was Charlie Weiss's last season at Notre Dame, and I, they lost to UConn, I think at UConn. I'm like, this is the end, and it was. Yeah, between that and uh, the snowballs getting thrown at Brandon Walker at the Syracuse game, where they lost to eventually 3-9 and nine Syracuse at home, that was a point where it's like, you know what, I've had enough here. Yeah, I've I've been there with Tennessee coaches, believe me. All right, I made another pick. Louisville is a one-point favorite against Air Force, and my logic is kind of simple on this. I think both teams are going to show up, but when you have time to really study the option offense that Air Force uses, usually if a team shows up wanting to win, they can shut that down. So I'm going with Louisville for the win. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. Um, I think it'll be close. I think the spread's one and a half last I saw. Am I right on that? Yeah, I I looked a couple of days ago. It was one. It could have changed. I, I would. They could win and potentially not cover. I think it could be that close of a game. Yeah, I, I love watching Air Force. I totally dig watching the option, but I think Louisville's going to shut it down. All right, Sonny, give us another game. Uh, so next, I would go with uh, Army minus three and a half against Missouri. I think that Missouri run defense is absolutely atrocious. Army, another option team. That's a recipe for disaster right there. I looked at that line and I did not understand it. Missouri did not have a particularly good season. Army did. I get that Missouri is an SEC team with SEC talent, but I agree with you. It looks like that that doesn't feel like enough points for Army. Yeah, no, and and I could see that one getting ugly. 
I'm trying to find. I, I currently have Army winning 34 to 17. I think it could get that ugly, if not even worse. Huh, so they, they'll be calling off the dogs in the third and fourth quarter. All right, I went with UVA, excuse me, Virginia, as an even against SMU. Uh, my thoughts are that it's Bronco Mendenhall's last game as the Cavs head coach. Everyone loves and respects Mendenhall, and I think everyone is going to give their absolute best effort for this game. Uh, also, SMU is running with an interim coach, so it's one of those lines, I don't get it, but I think UVA is going, going to bring their best game. So Virginia is actually a two-and-a-half-point favorite now. Wow, I'm using, like, ancient lines. Yeah, that's that's one quite a bit. I would actually go the opposite on that. I would take SMU. Like you said, interim coach, I think they got a lot to play for. And let's not forget, too, I think that they, at least in their mind, are still auditioning for a spot in the Big 12, which they belong in, by the way. But they want as many wins as possible. Um, I think it's going to be a shootout. But I would I would trust SMU's offense more. All right, I can see that. All right, give us another pick, Sonny. Uh, so this one, I'll take an underdog on this one. I'll take East Carolina plus three against Boston College. I think East Carolina wins that one outright. East Carolina, you know, I think they're seven and five. Not overly impressive. But they're a good football team. They're young, young head coach. I like what they're doing there. Um, they've been impressive at times. Other times they've been dumpster fire. I think they can come out big for this one. ECU's coach is uh, Mike Houston, right? From JMU? Correct. Yeah, I totally think they're going in the right direction. And I think they're going to be more up for that game than Boston College. So I agree with you. My number two and for a while this was my number one, is Utah plus 6.5 over Ohio State. Uh, Utah has an excellent head coach, Bronco, not Bronco Mendenhall, um, Kyle Whittingham, thank you. And he, can you believe Kyle Whittingham has been the coach at Utah since the day Urban Meyer left? That is a long time. It seems like he's been there forever. He's, I think, the second longest tenured coach now behind uh, Kirk Ferentz. Am I right on that? You are correct on that. And there is talk of Ryan Day going to the NFL after the season. I, I just think I think Ohio State is not going to care about this game after getting whooped up on by Michigan. And you better and it's the Rose Bowl. That's kind of sad, but I think that's what's going to happen. And you better believe Utah is going to be up for the Rose Bowl. I agree with that, but I disagree on the result. I think Ohio State wins that game and I think they win it comfortably. Again, just like Georgia and Alabama. Ohio State's embarrassed. They're mad. Now they're on the national stage in the Rose Bowl, which obviously, aside from the national championship game, it doesn't get bigger than the Rose Bowl. If you can't get up for that, what can you get up for? Uh, the national championship. I mean, I, all year long, they had to be thinking they were going to the playoffs, even with the loss to Oregon. And, you know, like I said, they get embarrassed by Michigan. Yes, there is a ton of NFL caliber talent on Ohio State, but you just have to, you know, I wonder whether or not they're going to show up, but I could see where you're coming from, Sonny. Like, like, okay, now we need to bounce back and not be embarrassed. This kind of reminds me of the Utah-Alabama, I believe it was Sugar Bowl a few years ago. Utah's coming in as the underdog. They want to prove everybody wrong. This this could be that kind of game, too. Yeah, Alabama, that was kind of embarrassing. Alabama got whooped up on both sides of the line. I remember that game, even though it was like 10 years ago. All right, Sonny, give us your final pick, please. Final pick, and, you know, I, I 
don't know if I want to do this because I don't want to come off as a homer like you not wanting to pick Tennessee. Notre Dame minus two against Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State was absolutely terrible in the Big 12 title game. I mean, Notre Dame is going to be not happy that they were that close. Um, Jack Cohn's coming back. They got a lot to prove, too, especially with the new head coach and Marcus Freeman. That was one that just missed for me. Notre Dame seems uh, really energized uh, over Marcus Freeman's hire. I mean, I'm sure you saw the video, Sonny, of the team going nuts when he was introduced. Um, And then there were rumors of Oklahoma State coach uh, Mike Gundy chasing the Florida job, which does wonders for morale, obviously. So (laughs) I can totally see Notre Dame spanking Oklahoma State. Yeah, um, I think Gundy's a lifer at Oklahoma State. And the video that you were talking about where uh, they introduced Freeman to the team, that's what sold me as Freeman as head coach. Although I keep having flashbacks to Bob Davey, who also was not a head coach, defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, then named head coach. For better, for worse, that's what I kept thinking in the back of my head, but I'm sold on him now. I was on the phone with Jeff Bowdrin, who is also a Notre Dame fan, and he asked me, you know, who do you think is going to be the new head coach? And he he laid out four names. I forget, you know, who the four were. And I said, well, I think it's going to be either Marcus Friedman, Marcus Friedman, Marcus Friedman, or Marcus Friedman. I think you you guys totally did the right thing uh, by elevating him. Uh, You know, obviously the players respond to him. And he was, you know, even before Brian Kelly shockingly left for LSU, I mean, if he didn't leave, I think Marcus Freeman would have been a head coach somewhere else, like Virginia Tech. Yeah, I like Freeman. I think he's got a good future as a coach. He's a good recruiter, great connection with the kids. But I spent, what was it, three days that uh, Notre Dame was without a coach. I spent trying to speak P.J. Fleck as a coach into existence. I absolutely love him. I know a lot of people are sick of his act. They think it's an act. I I mean, I think that's just a perfect fit. I was shocked when he took the Minnesota job because things were not looking good in Minnesota, and he turned a bad situation into a good one. While we're talking Notre Dame, what were your thoughts on Brian Kelly bolting to LSU? I was shocked. I was surprised, but I wasn't. I figured if he was going to leave, it was going to be soon. Um, I'm honestly surprised he didn't leave for the NFL much sooner. It hurts the way he left, um, especially after... I'm sure you saw the video of him talking to the players, explaining why he left. Basically, you know, all about him and got to do what's best for his family and all that. I think the the way he left is absolutely terrible, but I think that's a motivator for everybody within the Notre Dame program. So I think they can turn that negative into a positive. I can definitely see that. I, w- I was taken aback. I thought Brian Kelly would coach at Notre Dame for two or three more years and, you know, cash out. But it really felt like Brian Kelly, he got a 10-year, $95 million contract with LSU, and it really feels like Kelly's like, oh, you'll give me that much money? Sure, I'll take the job. I think he is going to be a flop in Baton Rouge, and I think you guys traded up. I really do. They're going to be sick of him in his eight-win seasons. And what does it tell you, too, that Kelly was LSU's, what, fourth, fifth choice, and they gave him that contract? Yeah. They were desperate. And I think they should have went after Billy Napier. He would have been perfect there. He knows the state of Indiana or uh, India, uh, Louisiana, of course, and he can recruit there. He's got connections. That was like a no-brainer to me, and they didn't do it. Florida got him instead. A year ago, Tennessee hired a new head coach, Josh Heupel. 
Billy Napier was the guy I wanted. And I'm not unhappy with Heupel. I'm very happy with Heupel. I was happy with him when they hired him. But he was my number one guy for the Tennessee job. And of course, you know, Tennessee's one of Tennessee's main rivals brings him in. And I think he's going to kill it at Florida. I think he's going to have a Spurrier-like run at Florida. Wow. Yeah, I could see it. I, I think the fit is a little weird. I'd rather have him at LSU, but I, I think he can definitely have success more than Mullen had. And it was painfully obvious. Mullen just quit after a while. He was done, then refusing to coach against Florida State in the finale, which granted, they fired him. I get that. But you could tell toward the end, he wasn't motivated. His players weren't motivated. That, that, that final game, or one of the last games they played against, uh, who was it, Samford? Tied yeah. 42 or 49 at half? Come on. That's not Florida football. No, it, it definitely isn't. And like I said, I think I think LSU was out to make a very splashy hire, and that that's great for you know the fir- first few months. But then the guys actually got to show up. I think this is going to be Brian Kelly's retirement job. I think he's going to be in three or four years. Just you know, thanks for the check while I sit at home. LSU. Speaking of Florida, my number one game is Central Florida plus seven point five against the Florida Gators. This is going to be UCF's Super Bowl. They, you know, all those players have to be 100% motivated, you know, oh my God, the Gators didn't even recruit me, recruit us, here we are at Central Florida, let's go get them. Seven and a half points is a lot, and Florida has an interim coach. It feels like the Florida Gators, they just can't wait for their season to be over. I worry that Central Florida is going to get themselves too hyped up and just make totally avoidable mental mistakes It's going to hand Florida the game. I think that's the only way that UCF loses this one. I think they win that one outright. I agree. I'm looking for. I'm not. I'm not a big. Well, I'm not a big Florida guy either. But I'm not a big UCF guy either. You know, them claiming a national championship when they don't really have one. But I'll be cheering for them on this day. And with that, let me start by saying I apologize if my voice wasn't a hundred percent for this episode. But you got to do it when it's time to do it. Sonny, thank you very much for coming on. It was a good show. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate it. And, and like, yeah, thank you again. I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the great work that he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols, beat Purdue. This concludes our podcast day.